Once again, good morning. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 8. As always, we like to say hi to the new folks. Good to see you this morning. And uh, just to kind of give you an FYI, we are working our way through the Gospel of John here at Calvary on Sunday mornings. And we're in chapter 8. We've taken a six-week break to do our True Freedom series. That ended last week. And so now we find ourselves back in John 8, and as we said a few weeks ago, uh, John chapter 8 contains the most heated confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees of his entire ministry. Before it was all over, they would accuse him in verse 41 of being a, a child of fornication. In other words, illegitimate. They didn't buy that virgin birth stuff, okay? Virgin birth, give me a break. Mary had an affair, and now she's tried to wrap it in some super spiritual lingo, you know. And this dogged him his whole life. Well, this was so such a heated confrontation that they just said it, okay? You, we're not a fornication, you know, they, it's, it's, get it all out on the table. And, uh, of course, Jesus came back, verse 44, called them children of the devil. And understand, so it was a little heated there. Uh, understand this confrontation started when Jesus declared himself to be Yahweh, the great I am. You see that in chapter 12, excuse me, verse 12, where he said that I am the light of the world. So he declared himself to be Yahweh, the great I am. And the chapter ended with his enemies, the Pharisees, picking up stones to kill him for blasphemy, verse 59. And so, guys, as we study John 9, understand that the whole chapter is built around Jesus' declaration of divinity, which led him to go four rounds with the Jewish leaders. At least that's how we're portraying it. Uh, this chapter breaks down into four main parts as he's uh, confronting these religious leaders, the Pharisees, and each uh, section has a slightly different theme. That's why, because it's a heated confrontation, we said round one, round two, round three, round four, broken into four rounds. Uh, I'll just give them to you quickly. Round one, theme, light and darkness, verses 12 to 20. Round two, theme, life and death, verse 21 to 30. Round three, freedom and bondage, verses 31 to 47. Round four, honor and dishonor, verses 48 through 59. Now, we are currently in the third of those sections, round three, freedom and bondage. And some of this this morning will be overlapping what we did in our True Freedom series. But since we're back in John 8, we have to pick it up. And I want to do a, a thorough uh, presentation of the material in chapter 8. So bear with me if you hear things that you, know, you already heard a few weeks ago. Bear with me. But going back to verse 31, Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. The Greek is truly my disciples. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Now, the truth Jesus is referring to here is the truth of God, which he said earlier he came from the Father to declare. Verse 26, he who sent me is true, and I speak to the world those things which I heard. From him. In other words, the Father has sent me to declare his truth to this word, world, and that's what I'm doing, all right? And so the truth Jesus is referring to is the truth of God. The freedom the Lord has in mind is freedom from Satan's lies. False doctrine is the idea. Uh, as we said a few weeks ago, Satan's lies take many different forms, but they all have the same basic effect, to imprison those who embrace them and turn them into captives of the devil. Now, how are we to respond to people who have been taken captive by the devil? Well, with kindness, humility, and gentleness. Paul said this in 2 Timothy 2, verses 24 to 26. He said, A servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able, patient, uh, excuse me, gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility correcting those who are in opposition. If God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth, and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, who has basically taken them captive to do his will. That's the idea. If a person 
isn't set free from the lies of the devil and dies in bondage to the devil, well, we all know the result. It will be eternal separation from God, eternal destruction in hell. This hold that Satan has on people through his lies is very powerful. It's not something that's light or can be taken lightly. And the only thing powerful enough to set people free from the lies of the devil, from this prison that uh, they are in through his lies, is the truth of God. The only thing strong enough to combat Satan's lies is the truth of God. As Jesus proclaimed here in John 8, 32, the truth and only God's truth will set you free. Spiritual warfare, as we have already stated in, in our previous studies in John 8, is primarily a battle for control of our thinking. Now, bear with me. I know we hit this theme pretty hard a few weeks ago. I felt led by the Holy Spirit to hit it again, coming from, at it from a little different direction, but same basic idea, okay? Let me say it again. Spiritual warfare, as we have already stated in our previous studies in John 8, is primarily a battle for control of our thinking. In fact, the Bible teaches that the mind is actually the main battlefield in our war with the devil, where most spiritual warfare is fought. Look, again, Satan knows if he can control your thinking, he can control your living. He can control you. Even as Solomon said in Proverbs 23, verse 7, as a man, woman, thinks in his heart, so is he. That's why the New Testament, guys, has so much to say about our minds as Christians, our minds. I'll read these to you. You can write them down. I won't have you turn to them. Too much to cover this morning. The New Testament has much to say about our minds as Christians. Uh, Colossians 3, verse 2, Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. Jesus said in Mark 12, verse 30, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the greatest of all the commandments, he said. Paul said in Philippians 2, verse 5, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, give you one more there's many others second corinthians 2 verse 11 paul talked about satan how he wants to take advantage of us he said paul said but for we are not ignorant though of his devices the greek could be translated mind games mind games the bible says that satan has blinded the minds of those who do not believe lest the light of the glorious gospel of christ should shine on them. Paul said that in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4. Now, this doesn't mean that people who have their minds blinded are helpless victims. No, in fact, they're blinded in their thinking to the truth because that's how they want it. That's how they want it. They've allowed it. Why? Because they love darkness rather than light, because they want to do evil. Look, God has come... Jesus Christ, God incarnate, invaded a world of darkness with God's truth. It was available to anyone and still is. The fact, though, is that many people don't want the truth. Read Romans 1, verse 18. They suppress their knowledge of God in their desire to live unrighteously. It's not God's fault that people don't want the truth. They don't want the light. They love darkness rather than light because they want to do evil. Paul has a lot to say about the unsaved mind, he said in Romans 1.28, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, they didn't want to retain God. God didn't do anything to them. He didn't keep the truth or his light from them. They did not like to retain God in their knowledge. God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. They love darkness rather than light. They don't want the light of God. Then here's darkness then. I'll just give it all, you over to it. You don't want my light. You don't want my truth. You love darkness. Well, here you go then. I'm not going to give you any more light. Romans 8, 7, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. I love Colossians 1, verse 21. And you, talking to Christians now, who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled. There's hope for all those who have a mind that's against 
God's truth. We were all there. At one time, our minds were contrary. Our minds were set on darkness rather than God's light. But the Holy Spirit was working. And eventually, we began to see the light. And as we did, we opened ourselves up to it more and more until we finally got saved. There's hope for people in darkness, even militant folks that don't want to believe. Atheists, right? Hey, there's hope for them. You just keep praying, especially if they're in your family. There's a lot. To, the Bible has a lot to say, especially in the New Testament, about a person's mind, how Satan targets it, targets it, how it is the main battlefield uh, for spiritual warfare. And that's why the Bible says that salvation begins, listen, with a change of mind. When Paul was in Athens on Mars Hill, he was witnessing to a group of Athenians. And he said, you know, guys, all these years you've been involved in this paganism, God allowed it because, you know what, the time had not come for the light to come into the world. But now Jesus has come. Truly, these times of ignorance, God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. The time God gave you a break, he didn't, you know, he, he was lenient with your paganism before Christ came. I mean, he didn't endorse it, don't get me wrong. Uh, but now that the light has come into the world, Jesus Christ, having brought God's truth in human form, there's no excuse now. And God expects people to embrace his truth. But Paul said, you know, God now commands all people everywhere to repent. The Bible says that salvation requires a person to first of all repent if they want to be saved. The Greek word for repent, repentance, is metanoia. And it literally means, guys, to have a change of mind. To have a change of mind. You're going in one direction. At least you were at one time in your life moving away from God. You thought it was the right direction. But eventually things began to happen that you began to realize my life is not really, it's not working out so well. The direction I have been going with my life hasn't proved to be very good for me and my family. And so you begin to rethink the direction of your life. You begin to rethink some of those things you embraced in the way that you felt life should be lived and so on. The direction you believed life you should go in with your life. And as you began to realize things were wrong, at one point you had a change of mind. That's called repentance. You turned around and started moving toward God. All your life you were moving away from God. Maybe suddenly some are going at a full-blown gallop. It's true. Others are just sliding slowly away from God. But you began to, you turned toward God, began to come to church or read the Bible or invited a Christian out to lunch because you wanted to hear what they had to say, and eventually you got saved. Now, now that you're saved, God has a different command for you and me. Once we get saved, Romans 12, 2, I'll have you turn to this one, because this one's uh, very pivotal. Once a person repents and receives Jesus as their Lord and Savior, then Christians are commanded... In Romans 12, verse 2, not to be conformed to this world. May I paraphrase? And do not allow yourselves to be conformed any longer to this world's way of thinking, is the idea. But now you must be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You're not living for yourself anymore. You were bought with a price, you and I. We are to live our lives now for God's glory, to do His will, not mine. Guys, this transformation by the renewing of your mind will only take place, listen to me now, if you continually fill your mind with the Word of God, God's truth. And that's what Jesus is, uh, had said in John 8, verses 31 and 2, when He said, if you abide in my word, the Greek is meno, it means to remain, to continue. Um, if you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. As you are saved, and now you begin to fill your mind with God's word, guess what? You begin to think like God thinks, which means you stop thinking like the world thinks. Very important. 
The result will be that you will be slowly transformed in your life from the inside out by the Holy Spirit, working through the Word of God which has been planted in your heart. Remember what the psalmist said in Psalm 119, verses 9 and 11. How can a young man or woman cleanse their way? By taking heed according to your word. Verse 11, your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. And that's not a one-time thing. That's constantly being hiding God's word in your heart. And the more you hide God's word in your heart, you read it. You think upon it. It's called meditating on it. You uh, even memorize it. The more you fill your heart and mind with God's word, the more the, the uh, Holy Spirit then can energize that truth with his divine power. The word of God working alongside the Holy Spirit, well, that is the dynamic uh, combination that brings transformation into our lives. We'll talk about that more in a moment. I, I said this a few weeks ago. Let me say it again. God's Word teaches us that godly living always flows from godly thinking. It's never the other way around. Godly living always flows from godly thinking, which is only possible, godly thinking, by the renewing of our mind through the Word of God. As I, as I said earlier, a couple weeks ago, I think, I'm absolutely convinced that the reason so many Christians are living worldly lives is because they're still thinking worldly thoughts. Their minds are still conformed to this world's way of thinking, and they have not allowed them to be transformed by the renewing that comes from the Word of God. Now, I'm not saying that they're not reading the Bible. I'm not saying that they're maybe not necessarily even going to Bible study, although I have my doubts. I have my doubts that really carnal Christians are in the Word too much or going to church on a regular basis. That's my conviction, Okay. They might be reading the Bible, and they might be going to Bible study here and there. So why aren't they changing? Why aren't they becoming more spiritual? Well, I think simply because they're not serious about putting into practice what they're learning. I mean, you know, I don't think it's rocket science, all right? James 1.22, listen, listen, be doers of the word and not just hearers only, what? Deceiving yourselves. There's a lot of folks that go to church and hear the Bible being taught, and they think, well, that's all I need. As if Scripture is like some kind of magic pixie dust. You come to church, you get sprinkled with a few verses, and that's all I need. I'm going to be automatically transformed, you know? No, the Word of God, as you listen to it, is hidden in your heart. It becomes a point of conviction for the Holy Spirit to then get you and say, hey, you know that's wrong. You're thinking about lying to your boss. You know that's wrong. My word has taught you that. Oh, yeah, I know that. Okay. You know, and, and the Holy Spirit is working that, uh, bringing to your attention what you've learned. It's not magic pixie dust stuff, but you've got to know it before the Spirit can convict you and give you the grace to do it, right? You have to want that, though, all right? Um, look, again, if you come to church, like I think so many Christians today, and hear the word of God taught, but, you know, you basically let it go in one ear and out the other without any real desire to obey it. Look, although the Bible is, is said to be living and powerful, the word of God, it will be rendered lifeless and powerless to do anything in your life of any consequence. You, you will rob it of its ability to change you. But again, guys, spiritual warfare at its core is a fight for control of a person's thinking. The classic passage, and there are several with regard to spiritual warfare. Uh, one of the ones at the top of the list is 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Why don't you turn there? Now, I, I told first service, if you've been coming to Calvary for any length of time, you have already heard what I'm about to teach, because I try to teach it about once a year whenever I'm doing anything with regard to spiritual warfare. I think it's that important to revisit this topic, uh, you know, uh, once every 8, 10, 12 months, just, to, just so that you understand. And for the new folks, this will be your first time. <laughs> it won't be your last that you'll hear this. Um, so if you've, if you've heard me teach this before out of 2 Corinthians 10, please bear with me. All right? As Peter said, I know you've, you know this, but sometimes we all need to be put in remembrance of what we already know. Okay? So 2 Corinthians 10, 
starting with verses 3 and 4. One of the classic passages on spiritual warfare. Here's what Paul said. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. Let me just paraphrase. Paul is saying, although our Christian lives are lived in these physical bodies, the flesh, we don't wage spiritual warfare in the flesh or with physical weapons. Our weapons and the only ones that will be victorious over the spiritual warfare we face, uh, they're not carnal, they're not fleshly or physical, but they, are, but they are mighty in God. Listen, and here's what spiritual warfare is all about. They are mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. Do you get that? Paul is saying here that spiritual warfare is all about pulling down strongholds. Okay, great. Close the book. Let's go. You, you got that, right? What? You know, what does that mean? Pulling down strongholds. Uh, what are these strongholds? Well, verse 5 tells us, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Guys, pulling down strongholds in verse 4 relates to casting down arguments in verse 5. In verse 4, Paul gives the metaphor. In verse 5, he explains the metaphor. These strongholds that we are to pull down, which is what spiritual warfare is really all about, these strongholds are arguments. The Greek word is logismos, and it means, it's a broad word, it means thoughts, opinions, philosophies, theories, or to sum it all up in one package idea, ideologies. Ideologies. Well, what exactly is an ideology? The dictionary defines ideology as, and I'm quoting now, a systematic body of concepts, especially about human life or culture. Did you get that? That's important that you know that because that's what Paul's thinking of when he talks about spiritual warfare. You got to have that in mind. Paul is telling us that spiritual warfare is really about fighting, listen, an ideological culture war. Spiritual warfare is all about fighting an ideological culture war. The and in verse 5, chi, most often translated and in the New Testament. In the Greek, though, it's chi, and uh, it should be translated in this passage, even. Here's how it reads. Paul is saying that we are fighting against ideologies, even every high thing, every proud arrogant, lofty ideology is the idea that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. And guys, they are myriad today with regard to ideologies. Of course, they would, uh, you know, uh, include some of the more obvious things. We're fighting against false religions and all the doctrines that go along that. We're fighting against cults and all the... Uh, a twisted, aberrant theology that they present, but it also would include legismos ideologies, would include things that we're fighting like atheism, communism, uh, Marxism, secular humanism. And guys, we've talked about it before, the one ideology that dominates our society, in fact, the entire Western world, uh, the one reigning ideology of our day is naturalism. Naturalism. Let me read to you what one author said about Naturalism. He said, and I quote, Naturalism is the reigning ideology of our day embraced by most of the intellectuals, scientists, educators, politicians, and judges in our country. Well, most of the world. A naturalist believes that God only exists as a fantasy in the minds of religious non-intellectuals. That's you guys and me. You're just too stupid. You're just... You know, you're not enlightened. Get with it. Still holding on to a book that's 2,000 years old? Come on. Nobody, we've all moved on. Oh, okay, well, you, the world has moved on. Uh, we haven't. So the naturalist believes that God only exists as a fantasy in the minds of religious non-intellectuals. He said in our universities, naturalism, which is the belief that nature is all there is, 
And everything came into existence through natural processes without any supernatural input by a deity is the virtually unquestioned, it's true, is the virtually unquestioned assumption upon which all matters of life are based. That's very true. He ends by saying, naturalism forms the foundation for the theory of evolution, a godless theory that presents everything apart from God. Of course, that's really dumb. Uh, I believe in the beginning God created everything. The evolutionists believe in the, in the beginning nothing created everything all by itself. Uh, you tell me which one is more foolish. You know, nothing brought forth everything all by itself. I don't buy it. So guys, spiritual warfare is primarily a battle against the brainwashing of the devil who has pumped incessantly into the minds of people through the mass media and other um, outlets, many, all of his satanic propaganda. Just so you know, we are fighting. This is the war we're in. This is the fight. We are fighting against lies, which include different thoughts, opinions, philosophies, theories, that have all been raised up, exalted, against the knowledge of God, our God. Some would say at this point, you mean spiritual warfare isn't about casting out, you know, spiritual warfare isn't casting demons out of people? Okay, but that's a very small part of it, okay? Some people, that's like everything, okay? Um, and Satan loves that. He loves Christians who think there's demons behind every rock and door. Every little hang-up you got, you have a thing for chocolate cake. That's the demon of chocolate cake. You've got to come to church and we'll pray for you for eight hours and deliver you from the demon of chocolate cake. Hey, if there was something like that, I would give into it, you know? I mean, if, if you could get rid of this demon of chocolate cake inside of me, I'm, I'm all for it. I think it's called resist the flesh, okay? You know? Resist the flesh. Not, you know, get the devil, you know. All right, you got that. Um, It's casting out demons is a small part of spiritual warfare. Primarily, though, on a day-by-day basis, spiritual warfare is all about, listen now, rescuing people who have been taken captive by the devils through his lies, and we have the truth that alone can set them free. The gospel in particular, but the whole word of God in general. And now, and here, guys, is where spiritual warfare intersects with our lives as believers. Since the devil wants people to go to hell, obviously, he hates the truth. He hates the truth of God because he knows it has the power to set people free from his deception. He hates it. And he hates anyone who would dare proclaim it, which is you and me. All right? And so, what has he done? Well, he wants to influence people, of course, and control the minds of unbelievers so that he can manipulate them to do his will. And so after he has filled their minds with all of his anti-God, anti-Christ, anti-Bible ideological propaganda, listen, he then turns these people loose on those of us who represent the truth to intimidate us into silence or to persecute us flat out into silence as he is doing in other parts of the world with believers. I mean, think of how the ACLU and the liberal media, see how they cover those who think like them and how they vilify, mock, and attack those who don't, like Christians. Now, that shouldn't surprise us because the God of this world is working through them. And Jesus said in John 15, look, If the world hates you, the world system, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of this world, if you were the devil's slave and under his authority, you'd be be doing what he wants. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. He's talking about the fallen world system controlled by the devil. Yes, of course, the devil hates us. And the devil pumps into his people a hatred for us. 
because he wants to silence us. And again, so once again, guys, spiritual warfare is a battle between the truth of God and the lies of the devil in the main battlefield where it is fought is in our minds for control of our thinking. Now, let me read 2 Corinthians 10, verses 4 and 5 once again, but this time out of the New Living Translation. So, uh, verse 4, We use God's mighty weapons, not mere worldly weapons, to knock down the devil's strongholds. With these weapons, we break down every proud argument that keeps people from knowing God. With these weapons, we conquer their rebellious ideas, and we teach them to obey Christ. Again, guys, we are in a war, but it's not a physical, conventional war, like we're used to seeing fought around the world. It's not a, a physical war that uh, you can use physical weapons to fight with, like uh, bazookas and tanks and AK-47s and that kind of thing. And yet, these weapons that God has given us to fight this spiritual battle are very powerful. Hang on to that. We'll come back to it in a moment. But I want you to, to see verse 4 again out of the uh, NLT, excuse me, out of the New King James this time. Uh, 2 Corinthians 10, verse 4. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, okay, but they are mighty, listen, for the pulling down of strongholds. Now the NASB translates that last part, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. That's how they uh, translated it. It's interesting that in Greek, the word translated fortress right there in 2 Corinthians 10 verse 4 could also be translated prison and tomb. Depending on the context. The same word translated fortresses. These things that we are to pull down could also be translated prison and tomb. I think that's very appropriate and I think Paul chose his words wisely because he wanted us to realize that these fortresses, fortresses that we assault are the fortresses or the prisons of the damned. They are, they are, I should say, they are the fortresses of the damned that are really their prisons and will become their tombs if someone doesn't set them free. That's spiritual warfare at its core. And again, guys, these fortresses are all the aberrant ideologies that people take refuge in all the strongholds of lies, whether they be, you know, the wisdom of man or doctrines of demons that people seek to fortify themselves in against the true knowledge of God. Is it just me? Or I, I have never seen a time in my life where people are buying into such demonic lies that I'm seeing today. If you would have told me 10 years ago that in 10 years, if a man decides he really is a woman, he'd be allowed to go into the girl's locker room and, and uh, in the shower, I would have said, you're crazy. That, that would never happen. If you would have told me that our whole country would be on the brink of accepting socialism, with all that's involved in that, it's just communism light, I would have said, never happened. It's like we've reached a critical mass of craziness where people have lost their minds. You see it every day in the news. People calling good evil, evil good. I, that God said in the Old Testament, that is a prelude to judgment. When a, when a people's uh, thinking becomes so warped and perverted that good is evil in their minds and evil is good, that nation is almost too far gone. And judgment is the next thing. Unless revival hits. Pray for revival. Our only hope. But it's like we've reached a, a critical mass of craziness where the more people buy into weird, goofy ideologies, the more people want to buy into them. One person spouts off some ridiculous Green New Deal, and then the whole world wants it. Everybody wants it on that side of the aisle. You know? Even though it means getting rid of, you know, Cars and planes and cows and, uh, you know, 
I happen to like hamburgers. I, well, well, you can eat a veggie burger. I don't want a veggie burger. You want to eat a veggie burger? Go ahead. I don't want a veggie burger. But again, guys, when Paul is talking here in 2 Corinthians 10 about these fortresses, again, he uses, he chooses his words very carefully because he wants us to know what we're up against. I think one pastor captured it pretty good. He said, we are assaulting massive stone fortresses, not cardboard houses or tents, and you can't do that with pea shooters and pop guns shooting ping pong balls, end quote. You know what that is? The ping pong balls and the pop gun shooters and things? That's the wisdom of the world. That's the, even, even the teaching of the Word of Faith movement, who teach people a bunch of uh, pat little formula responses. You know, and you, you hear them throwing around these little phrases, which are supposed to be, you know, stop it. I bind you, say, oh, Satan said, I'm bound. What can I do? And I, can't, I can't go any farther. I bind you, Satan. Where in the scriptures does it actually teach where Satan, Jesus or the disciples ever use that phrase to bind Satan? Resist the devil, he'll flee. Okay? Where there's power in words. That's the whole word of faith movement. You know where that idea comes from? The occult. People in the occult have always believed there's power in words. That's the, the basis for the incantations and hexes and spells. That words have power. Well, I believe there is a word that has power. It's God's word. But even then, I don't throw it around like these little catchphrases from the Bible. I read what God is saying, and I apply it, and I try to live it by God's grace in my life, but just repeating scriptures and throwing around verses, that's not going to really do too much if you don't plan on living that. You can't pull down these demonic strongholds, fortresses, with clever gimmicks, verbal formulas, or even human philosophies like pop psychology. It takes something much more powerful to smash these fortresses. And so what are these mighty weapons? That's what we need to know. What are these mighty weapons God has given to us to smash the ideological strongholds and fortresses that God commands his people to go up against, to fight, and destroy? Well... Paul didn't tell, doesn't tell us in 2 Corinthians 10 because he feels we should know them. He does mention them in Ephesians 6. What are the weapons of our warfare? The word of God and prayer. The word of God and prayer. And so, guys, spiritual warfare, first of all, is all about freedom. It's all about freedom. Jesus said it, the truth will set you free. First of all, our freedom. We can't help anybody else till we get saved, till we're set free from the devil. And of course, that doesn't end the moment we accept Christ. That's when the process of saying that salvation is a miracle of the moment. Sanctification, becoming more and more like Jesus, is, is, is the work of a lifetime. But as we are growing every day in our, uh, in, into the image of Christ, hopefully we are, by being in the Word and so on, God sends us out into this world to, to fight spiritual warfare on a different level. That other stuff is inward. We talked about that in our True Freedom series. But he sends us out into a world that's been taken captive by the devil, and we begin to share the light of God's truth, the word of God which can set them free. It's called evangelism. Evangelism. I mean, Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, the Bible says. And as the captain of our salvation, Hebrews 2, verse 10, he has enlisted us as soldiers to continue to fight the good fight of faith every single day against the God of this world and is being waged. Listen, this is what's at stake. This, this spiritual warfare is being waged for the souls of men and women, listen to me, many of whom are people that we know and love, our friends and our family. There's a lot at stake in this battle, isn't there? And when Christians check out of the fight, when Christians think it's club med and not a battlefield, it's a playground, that really upsets me and others. This is not a game. This is not a social event. 
We are soldiers of Christ. We are fighting a spiritual battle every single day. You better strap on the armor of God, and you better take it seriously because the devil sure is. If you're playing games, he's going to target you and take you out. And that just simply means he's going to destroy your walk, your family, your marriage, your ministry. He's going to totally neutralize your effectiveness because he hates you and he wants to neutralize any effect you have on other people reaching them with the gospel. Christians go A-W-O-L. I just, I, I just, wow. You know, it just really is uh, bothering. Um, when it comes to those who have been taken, and we'll, we're almost done. When it comes to people who have been deceived by the devil, who have been taken captive by him, many of them, most of them probably, 99%, I think, are oblivious, completely oblivious to the fact that they have been taken captive by the devil and are now under his control doing his bidding. They think they're so independent. You Christians, you know, you got to go to church. you got to read the Bible. You can't have any fun. You can't party. You can't, you know, sleep around. And they think that they are so free and we are in such bondage as they look out, you know, from their little cell, not realizing that they're in the cell. But this is how it is. The devil has blinded them. A prime example of this was the Pharisees and Jesus. They look at verse 31 again. Jesus said to those Jews who believed in him, if you abide in my word, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will you know, make us free? Guys, as we said a couple weeks ago, if that statement by the Pharisees wasn't so sad, it would almost be funny. We are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. Seriously? Politically, that was completely wrong. Because Israel, over their history, had been in bondage to seven powerful nations, starting with Egypt, then Assyria, then Babylon, then Medo-Persia, then Greece, then Syria, and finally, at that time, Rome. Now, unless these guys had a major case of... Um, Denial, which I just have a hard time believing that. I mean, it's hard for me to believe these Jewish leaders were denying the political bondage the nation had been in for centuries to various enemies. I, I have to conclude they were talking about spiritual and moral freedom and not national or political freedom. Again, a few weeks ago, we said that people can be in spiritual bondage and yet be completely blind to it. It's probably that these Pharisees felt because they uh, were descendants of uh, Abraham, uh, okay, and um, of course, as God's people, Israel by co uh, Israel was God's people by covenant. Uh, God gave them His word, His law, on top of Mount Sinai, gave it to Moses, right? And so it seems like they uh, interpreted that to mean that because they had God's word, and because they were descendants of Abraham, they had His blood in His veins, in their veins, they were somehow immune to spiritual deception and moral impurity, I guess. Of course, you can have Abraham's blood in your veins and not have Abraham's faith in your heart. Abraham had two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. Both had Abraham's blood in their veins. Only one had Abraham's faith in his heart, Isaac. Uh, Jesus... I think he, that's how he understood what they were saying. Because he responded in verse 34, Most assuredly I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. So he didn't interpret what they were saying to mean political freedom. It was spiritual freedom. And Jesus said, Most assuredly I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. In the New King James, most assuredly, if you're reading out of the King James, verily, verily, it's amen, amen in the Greek, which is the word we get our word amen from, and it means truly. So Jesus is saying most assuredly or truly. He, we talked about this a few weeks ago. He did this 
whenever he wanted to emphasize, listen, the absolute importance of what he was about to say, he would say, truly, truly, most assuredly. The Greek in verse 34 is, whoever continually commits sin is a slave of sin. Every one of us as Christians can sin. But if the general pattern of a person's life is a lifestyle of sin, that indicates something. And that's what Jesus said here and what he said earlier, that the general pattern of a person's life will reveal if they are a slave of sin, in other words, an unbeliever under the devil's control, or whether they're a child of God now under the Spirit's control, the Holy Spirit. The Lord earlier said in his ministry that we would know believers from unbelievers by what was produced in their life. Listen, I'll read it to you out of Matthew 7. You can identify them, believers from unbelievers, by their fruit, that is, by the way they act. Can you pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? A good tree produces good fruit, and a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot produce good fruit. So every tree that is, does not produce good fruit is chopped down and is thrown into the fire. That's hell. Yes, just as you can identify a tree by its fruit, you can identify people by their actions. So an unbeliever can't bring forth the fruit of the Spirit. They're a thorn. They're, they're, a, a, you know, they're a thorn bush in a sense. Uh, that's what sin is. They're dominated by sin. And a Christian is not going to keep bringing forth sin. It won't be the pattern of their lives. I was going to read you these. I'll just give me to read on your own. 1 John 2, verses 3 and 4. 1 John 3, verses 6 to 9. Of course, Galatians 6, verses 7 and 8. Don't be misled. Whatever a person sows, they will reap. You sow to the flesh if you're constantly living for sin. Well, you're going to, you're, you know, you're going to reap from the flesh. Hell is the idea. All right, let's just finish. Okay, verse 35 and 6 we'll end with. Jesus said, you know, that we've never been in bondage to any man. We are free. We have the law. We're children of Abraham. Well, verse 35, a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. While these Jews thought their religion and their relationship to Abraham saved them, they had religion. They didn't have a relationship. For 20 plus years, I had religion. I grew up in the Roman Catholic Church. I thought I knew God. Um, and I knew stuff about God. But I didn't have a personal relationship with him until I gave my heart to Christ. And then I looked back and said, now I understand the difference between religion and a relationship. Okay? The Pharisees, at this point, did not. Some of them will get saved and had gotten saved, and not many. So Jesus is just talking in general to this group of men that, look, their religion, Judaism, and their relationship to Abraham did not constitute a relationship with God. It didn't make them right with God. What they needed was to be set free of sin because at that point they were slaves of sin, and desperately needed to be set free from their spiritual bondage and become true children of God with God as their father. That's the relationship. I'll read you one more quote from Warren Worsby. We'll close. I think he ties it up pretty well. He said, Jesus explained that the difference between spiritual freedom and bondage is a matter of whether one is a son or a slave. The slave may live in the house, but he is not part of the family. And he cannot be guaranteed a future. Uh, Jesus may have had Isaac and Ishmael in mind here. And he references Genesis 21. We just talked about that. Quoting Jesus again, he said, Whoever keeps, whosoever keeps on practicing sin, that's the literal translation, words be said, just keeps on practicing sin, is the slave of sin. These religious leaders would not only die in their sins, John 8 21 and 24 makes reference to that. But they were right then living in bondage to sin, didn't even realize they were the slaves of sin. How can slaves of sin be set free? Only by the Son of God. How does he do it? Through the power of his word, the gospel. Note the emphasis on the word of God in John 8, 
especially in verses 38 to 47. And he had already told them the truth shall make you free. They would not make room. They would not make room for his word in their hearts, end quote. And that's why they weren't saved. It wasn't God withholding light or truth from them. Jesus came to declare God's truth and they rejected him. They were right with God because, again, they had religion, they had rituals, they had circumcision. The Jews believed, and I'll end with this, the Jews firmly believed, the rabbis taught, that Father Abraham stood outside the gates of hell and to pluck any unbelieving Jew, didn't even have to be a believing Jew, pluck any unbelieving Jew out of the line of those going in because two things. They were descendants of Abraham and they were circumcised. Now, Paul picks up on, so that way they're automatically saved. Paul picks up on that, I think, in Romans and says, look, again, Ishmael had Abraham's blood in his veins. He wasn't saved. And by the way, God pronounced Abraham righteous by his faith, Genesis 15, 6, 14 years before he was circumcised, Genesis 17. And his point is, circumcision didn't save Abraham. Just like water baptism isn't going to save you or me. I was baptized as a child. As a Catholic, I was taught that's the doorway. That, that, now I'm redeemed. No, that's just sprinkling water on somebody. And circumcision was just removing the flesh, some of the flesh. God wanted their hearts circumcised. He wanted them to live holy lives, separated to him. All right, we will pick this up, God willing, next time. Father, we thank you. For your word, your word is truth. And Lord, give us grace to read it, meditate on it, memorize it, Lord. Walk in its light that we will never then stumble in darkness. The devil's lies can never take anyone here in this room today captive. And the lies are becoming more subtle, Lord, in the church. There's more false doctrine entering into the church of Jesus Christ today than at any other time in history. And some of it is pretty obvious and is, uh, is easy to detect. Some is very subtle. And we must know the, your truth even more better. And more better. Whatever, Lord. We, we must know your truth even better if we're going to be able to spot the devil's lies when they come our way. So, Lord, keep giving us grace as we study your word. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Let's all stand.